Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, directing the TOSIC Early Cancer Therapeutics Program and co-directing the Cleveland Clinic Sarcoma Program. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Brian Hill, director of the Lymphoid Malignancies Program here at Cleveland Clinic. Brian was previously a guest on this podcast to discuss biomarkers that predict outcomes for CAR T-cell therapy in patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and that episode is still available for you to listen to. He's here today to talk to us about advances in treatment of mantle cell lymphoma. So welcome back, Brian. Thank you for having me. So remind us a little bit, what do you do here at Cleveland Clinic? Yeah, so uh, I see patients with lymphoma and related conditions, uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, lymphomas, uh, Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and I'm the director of the Lymphoid Malignancies Program. So we oversee uh, the clinical care of these patients and get all of our uh, physicians aligned in terms of uh, how we uh, approach and manage these patients, uh, but also I'm pretty actively involved in clinical research. So we have a large portfolio of clinical trials for novel therapeutics uh, in the frontline and relapse settings, as well as cellular therapies for uh, lymphoid malignancies. Excellent. Today we're going to talk about mantle cell lymphoma. A lot of different people might be listening in. Lots of different kinds of lymphoma can get kind of confusing. Um, remind us, mantle cell lymphoma, what is it? Yeah, so mantle cell is not the most common lymphoma, but it, you see it. Um, it's somewhere around 8% of non-Hodgkin lymphomas. It, it is a B-cell malignancy. And it, it tends to have a, a pretty variable clinical course, but we think of it generally as being aggressive meaning that uh, for most patients at the time of initial presentation, it does need to be treated. The uh, characteristic biologic features are cyclin D1 expression. That's sort of the hallmark of it, although that's not really pathognomonic for mantle cell. That's seen in over 90% of the cases. And although there are about 10% of patients who can have mantle cell that looks uh, very similar to CLL, we call it leukemic non-nodal, with just a high white count and no other symptoms. Um, most patients will have large lymph nodes, probably high LDH, frequent B symptoms, and frequently uh, present with uh, signs or symptoms that uh, warrant uh, immediate treatment. And, and give us an idea, what are the current treatments? What's first line? What, what do we do? Yeah, so over the years, uh, not being uh, terribly innovative, we gave RCHOP uh, as we did and do. For very many. clever. <laughs> yeah, very clever. Uh, but it turns out if you just give RCHOP for mantle cell lymphoma and do nothing else, the, the survival is actually very short, two to three years. So RCHOP really isn't the standard or best treatment. Um, there are a few different options. Uh, we know that um, from randomized studies coming out of Europe, uh, the so-called Nordic regimen in which you alternate or, or combine regimens or cycles of RCHOP with chemotherapy containing hydocytarabine that you improve outcomes. We also know that um, if you uh, consolidate uh, patients in first remission with an autologous stem cell transplant, that they tend to uh, have longer remissions than if you don't. Um, but that probably also depends on what they got as their induction regimen. Uh, beyond that, um, there are, um, th there's very good data supporting the use of maintenance therapy in uh, mantle cell lymphoma. So a, a dose of rituximab 
every two months for up to two to three years actually improves survival uh, in contrast to indolent lymphomas or follicular where uh, maintenance therapy improves PFS but not survival. And more recently, I would say for patients that are older, let's say 70 and older, and you don't think autologous stem cell transplant is really a, a great option, or maybe they're too far away or don't want to go through that effort, actually head-to-head studies of RCHOP with bendamustine rituxan or BR show that BR is uh, actually better than RCHOP and, and safer. So for older patients with mantle cell lymphoma, just doing six cycles of BR and then maintenance therapy is a very reasonable approach. So what are some of the challenges with sort of first line? We'll talk first line, then we'll talk about later. Yeah. What are some of the challenges of therapy? What is, how, what, how has that sort of changed what we're yeah. thinking about doing? I think a lot of it depends on uh, aging comorbidities. So even bendamustine rituxan can be difficult for the older, frailer patients, 75, 80-year-olds and beyond with comorbidities. So that's one obstacle. And uh, looking at you know, the use of novel targeted pathway inhibitors for those patients in frontline therapy is something that's of active interest. The other thing that's really important and has been increasingly recognized over the past five to 10 years is that a subset of patients with mantle cell will have uh, TP53 mutations, similar to CLL if you have a 17P deletion uh, or P53 mutation. The outcomes of chemotherapy are really dismal. And so it's become more and more common to test at the time of diagnosis using next generation sequencing from tissue biopsies to make sure you're, you're not missing a, a TP53 mutation. Because if you have that, uh, traditional chemotherapy is really not going to get you where you want to go. And those are patients you might think about targeted therapies That's earlier. Right. Yeah. yeah. And there's new studies uh, looking into those. So from a practical standpoint, as a as a solid tumor guy who is jealous of most of your response rates. Um, how effective are most of these first-line therapies? Yeah, yeah, so highly effective. I think, you know, response rates in all comers with uh, a, a regimen like BR should be in the 80 to 90% range, uh, remissions. Did I mention uh, being jealous? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, sarcoma is a, a difficult set of diseases and uh, we're uh, uh, envious of your, uh, your commitment, let's put it that way. <laughs> But yeah, so the response rates are extremely high. It's really more the durability that we look at is, you know, again, it's great to respond, but if six, nine months later, the lymphoma is you know, rapidly progressing, it hasn't got, again, got us where we and the patients want them to go. And I guess when you get those, those uh, relapses, what does uh, treatment look like yeah. at that point? Yeah, so historically, if patients didn't have an autotransplant in first remission, and there was a, a recurrence sometime after achieving remission after frontline therapy. Autotransplant was done, but I would say now it's going to fall out of favor because usually patients have had an autotransplant up front or weren't great candidates or didn't make it there in, in the first place. So really we have two really good approaches for uh, relapsed mantle cell. At this point, we have um, several uh, FDA-approved uh, covalent BTK inhibitors, and um, I'll list them in order of FDA approval. So ibrutinib followed by acalabrutinib, followed by xanabrutinib. These are all oral once or twice a day medications that are, again, highly effective response rates up in the 70% range um, for mantle cell lymphoma in relapse. They work better the sooner you use them. So 
fourth line or third line isn't as good as second line. So really, it is the standard of care to really um, uh, introduce a BTK inhibitor in, in relapsed mental cell lymphoma. And any of those three uh, are highly effective. Uh, probably acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib are more commonly used because of the better tolerability in terms of cardiovascular risk. So those, those are the kind of main uh, mainstay of oral therapy, uh, targeted therapy in the relapse setting. Uh, but you know, the challenge, again, is the durability. So unlike CLL, where you can control for years and years and years with the BTK inhibitor, with mantle cell, the median progression-free survival is on the order of 24 to 36 months. So it's not really a home run. You know, it's good, but it's not exactly where we want to go. So that kind of brings us to the other approach. The other approach is cellular therapy, which we've talked a lot on this show and I'm, I'm sure your audience is familiar with. But CAR T-cell uh, with brexicaptogene autolucil is FDA-approved for mantle cell lymphoma. And um, again, it's uh, highly effective. I'm happy to go into more of that or we can... Yeah, if you want to just yeah. briefly give us a little bit of an idea on on that role of CAR T-therapies, because that, that is something people are frequently interested in. And then, you know, are there other cellular approaches that are being explored? Yeah, yeah. So um, CAR-T um, therapy um, is um, a little, has some barriers to it. Uh, number one, it's only available at authorized treatment centers. So if you live some distance from a, an authorized treatment center, which is usually a academic tertiary care type setting with that has a bone marrow transplant program. Um, so... If your patient can get to one of those uh, sites, um, then there is a, a leukophoresis, so a cell collection that has to be arranged a after some period of um, staging and, and insurance approval. And then there's about a three-week manufacturing period. And then there's a lymphodepletion chemotherapy for three days, followed by usually a hospitalization to administer the cells and a about a two-week period of time of monitoring for toxicities. The toxicities um, with CAR-T include cytokine release syndrome, which is characterized by fever, cardiopulmonary instability, but also sometimes neurologic uh, uh, events, neurologic uh, toxicities, um, including uh, sort of confusion. Uh, this is uh, and um, sometimes even more significant um, neurologic changes. So it's a it's a difficult treatment for younger, fitter patients. Uh, you'll have to have a caregiver uh, to help you when you leave the hospital. You're not supposed to drive a car for eight weeks. Uh, so there's um, all, all of these challenges that um, are difficult. But uh, that being said, the complete remission rate is uh, on the order of 70%. So it's extremely effective. And we have patients who had exhausted all therapies who've ha had CAR-T treatment, you know, five years ago, and they're still in remission. So it has the advantage that it's a, a one-and-done potentially curative uh, approach for a subset of patients with mantle cell lymphoma. So I guess if you think about patients who relapse, um, you have oral medications, you have these more complex cellular therapies, more complex, more expensive. How do you, how do you make the decision what, which path to go down for most patients? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, I think it does have to be individualized. So uh, for patients who are young, and had a short remission after their frontline therapy, would really try to get them to, to get uh, to CAR-T if they can and will, um, because I, I do think it has the, the best opportunity for 
uh, complete remissions and, and long-term remissions. There are some potential long-term effects, including immunosuppression, uh, which is part of this. But for again, for younger, fitter patients, I think it's a really good option. Uh, for older patients who have, uh, you know, let's say had a nice long remission after treatment eight years ago and now they're relapsing, the durability of the response to a BTK inhibitor is, is much better than if it is if it's, early, you know, early relapse. So I, I think that if they're never going to get to CAR-T anyway, then going straight to BTK inhibitor makes sense. I think where we get into difficulty is the sort of middle ground is uh, when you have a patient who you think is a candidate for CAR-T, but maybe don't think it's the right time, and you get them on a BTK inhibitor to control their disease, when do you sort of pull the trigger, so to speak, on, on CAR-T therapy? If they're in remission, it's a, a little bit of a difficult sell. On the other hand, if you wait till they relapse, it might be difficult to, to get them collected, approved, and treated, um, because beyond covalent BTK inhibitor treatment, um, historically, the outcomes of patients has been pretty poor. I guess uh, you know, you, sort of one of your roles is to oversee a program that is not here on main campus alone, but in our regional sites here in Cleveland, sites that are in, in other states and even other countries. How do you think through that same sort of question? Like, how do you, like what to offer, what patients, how you, how you define what therapies are best sort of globally for patients? Yeah, certainly. So we, we do have a care paths for lymphoma, and we do have a care path for frontline treatment that uh, outlines what we think is best depending on the age and whether they're a candidate for autotransplant or not. Beyond that, it's, it's a little bit difficult to be prescriptive, but we do uh, want to and try to engage with our uh, colleagues in the general oncology practices, both within the Cleveland Clinic system as well as outside of our system because we have a you know, large referral network. Um, so trying to be available to kind of talk through these cases. Um, it's also true that therapeutics evolve rapidly. We get new approvals, and um, that might bring us to where we are in 2024. You mentioned about referrals and people being treated other places. It, it would seem that there are a lot of patients that could be in places where if there's a pill available, if they may have a local doc that will just go straight to the pill. Yeah. I mean, I guess what what would you think is like who who should really be seen at a center that sees this disease? Yeah. I actually think that if possible, uh, every patient with mantle cell should at least get a c initial consultation with uh, a lymphoma specialist, um, if possible, and if not at the initial diagnosis, at least maybe the um, treating oncologist can and should reach out to their neighborhood specialist, <laughs> wherever in the country they are, um, just to make sure that the frontline regimen they're using is is best uh, for that patient. Um, but certainly at the time of relapse, I, I think that either patients should be. Uh, consulted with either directly or indirectly with um, uh, someone who's treating a fair amount of lymphoma because, again, it's it's a relatively uncommon and, and the number of patients seen in a general practice with relapsed mantle cell is probably uh, pretty limited, whereas uh, at a referral center we're seeing a fair amount of patients with these cases on a monthly basis. You mentioned uh, looking at some of the targeted therapies early on first line. Um, you know, clearly there's a couple of different therapies uh, for relapse. Uh, what, what's the area of greatest need at this point? Better therapies up front 
better therapies for relapse or maybe a little of both? Yeah, I would say a little bit of both. So the the obvious question that, you know, as you know, across oncology is always, well, you've got these great agents in relapse, let's move them forward. So uh, at the American Society of Hematology meeting, not 2023, but the year before, so December 2022, was presented something called the Triangle Study, was the plenary session. So in the Triangle Study, it was a three-arm study uh, that came, again, from largely Northern European countries that um, compared standard, what's called Nordic style induction chemotherapy with anthracycline uh, based uh, and cytarabine based uh, alternating induction regimen followed by autologous stem cell transplant. That was sort of the control arm. And then there was a second arm where they added ibrutinib, the BTK inhibitor uh, with transplant. And then the third arm, again, had ibrutinib with the standard chemotherapy backbone but it um, subtracted the autologous stem cell transplant. And the results have yet to be published in a peer-reviewed journal, which many of us are waiting for, but um, the results as, as presented at the meeting showed that if you use a BTK inhibitor during induction and um, afterwards instead of an autotransplant, showed that actually your outcomes were as good as, uh, as if you did the autotransplant without the BTK inhibitor. So it's, I think, leading many people in the field to question whether we really need that autotransplant because there's lots of you know, toxicity and, and late effects of, of that high doses of chemotherapy. Plus, um, it suggests that using a BTK inhibitor as part of your induction may um, allow you to avoid that. So that's, that's the big uh, frontline question right now. And, and we're kind of, I think, moving that way. And there's some more important studies that are going to be reported in the near future that will help inform that. And the other question about relapse is, you know, what do you do? Again, older patients or people who've had a BTK inhibitor, a, a covalent BTK inhibitor, and it stops working. So it, it turns out that mantle cell lymphoma is very addicted to that B-cell receptor signaling pathway. And the covalent BTK inhibitors I've mentioned, uh, ibrutinib, acala, brutinib, and xanabrutinib, all bind to the same um, cysteine residue. It's a sulfide bond right in the uh, active pocket of, of the enzyme. Um, and in CLL, that we know that you can develop mutations there that prevent all three of those drugs from binding and they lose their activity. Um, similarly, in mantle cell lymphoma, patients can develop resistance to these covalent BTK inhibitors, and um, there's a, a newly approved uh, agent, pertabrutinib, which sounds very similar, but is, uh, has a very important distinction from the covalent BTK inhibitors, which is actually is what's called non-covalent BTK inhibitors. So it binds in the hydrophobic pocket right next to or adjacent to that uh, active um, cysteine residue. So it can actually work when the covalent BTK inhibitors uh, stop working. And this is pretty remarkable. Um, th there was recent publications uh, showing that the response rate, again, in, with pertabrutinib in both in CLL and mantle cell is in that 70% range and um, extremely well-tolerated agent. So very few toxicities. It's oral uh, once a day. Um, so we've used this agent in patients who've been previously treated with a covalent BTK inhibitor and seen uh, good activity. Um, at the end of the day, it's still going to be about the durability. So if, um, how long can you stay in remission? The PFS here on these studies is, you know, maybe a year or two at best. So it's still, it's, a, it's much uh, better than um, 
what we've seen before, but it's um, still, I think, uh, needs some help. But important if you if the covalent BTK inhibitors move earlier in in therapy, you'll still have a couple of options for relapse. For sure, yeah. And the final thing that's I think on the horizon that I'll mention again at the 2023 ASH meeting we saw in a late breaking session a randomized study called Sympatico. The Sympatico trial compared ibrutinib to ibrutinib plus venetoclax, randomized trial in relapse patients, and there was a major advantage to combining the BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax with ibrutinib. Um, the challenge right now is that ibrutinib actually has lost its FDA approval for mantle cell uh, because of uh, failure of confirmatory phase three trials. So actually, um, even though I mentioned at the beginning that it was one, the first it's uh, to be approved, it's actually the first to get pulled and probably hopefully the only to get pulled because of probably mainly because of some of the cardiovascular toxicities. So it's still available for, uh, for CLL, but it's not um, FDA approved for mantle cell lymphoma anymore. So there's a lot of excitement, I think, about the combination of venetoclax with a BTK, covalent BTK inhibitor. Um, but right now we can't really prescribe that doublet. Um, they're both oral and they're not approved or on uh, NCCN guidelines yet. Um, but I think um, it opens the door to combining venetoclax with the other BTKs, both covalent and pertubrutinib in the non-covalent category. Well, it's great to hear that uh, for a, a fairly small subset of lymphoma, there's so many so many good therapies that are available. There's good active research. For sure. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, nice to see. I think it really is a global effort. There's um, big efforts in the United States uh, through the cooperative groups to answer some of these questions. There's big efforts in Europe to answer some of these questions in, in randomized trials. And there's continued interest from um, the private sector to develop drugs for this relatively uncommon lymphoma. Um, and it's, it's good to see we've seen our patients do better over the years as a result. It's fantastic. Thanks for your insights yeah, today. Great. Thanks for having me. To make a direct online referral to our Tosa Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive a confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. For more podcast episodes, visit our website, clevelandclinic.org slash cancer advances podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.